Okay, on the uh, 28th of August, 1963, Martin Luther King, he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, I think it was, in Washington, D.C. He addressed a large crowd, and Martin Luther King did so using a very, very famous phrase. We all know what that phrase was, I'm sure. What did Martin Luther King say? He said, I have a dream. I have a dream. Well, as I uh, stand before you this morning, I cannot claim to have had a dream. I haven't, uh, but I do have a hope. In fact, more than that, I have a prayer this morning. I pray that this in here just now will be a watershed moment for London City Presbyterian Church. I pray that this in here, this 25 minutes, this half hour just now, I pray that this will be a turning point in the life of our congregation. I'll tell you why. This morning we come to a portion of scripture in Malachi where God demands change. A portion of scripture where God speaks to this covenant community and he exhorts them to reorientate their lives, to turn from the sin that is there, to turn back to him in devotion and love. So you can see the hope, can't you? The prayer. The prayer is the same thing happens right now and here. That as we listen to God's word, that we too will be changed. That as we hear the Holy Spirit, honestly, friends, the prayer is that London City Presbyterian Church will never, ever be the same again. Can I do this? Can I uh, lay before you the plan of action? Um, Friends, this morning in, in Malachi 3, We're going to see, first of all, a remarkable appeal. Then we're going to see, as this text progresses, we're going to see a remarkable accusation. And then we're going to see remarkable assurances. Does everyone have it? A remarkable appeal, a remarkable accusation, and then remarkable assurances. We have it, don't we? So what we do, let's hit the ground running. Malachi 3 verse 6 to verse 12. And the first thing is a remarkable appeal. Now, I'm sure by now, uh, certainly if you're part of this congregation, you are very familiar with the background uh, to this Old Testament book, aren't you? What do we know? It's the middle of the 5th century BC. This is a group of people who have recently returned from slavery back to Israel, but they have returned to what is, you might say, a season of struggle. That's what's going on in Israel just now. The pagans all around are prospering. The pagans are flourishing. But the people of Israel, wow, they're eking out a live just about. There's lots of struggling going on. Now, how have they, if you look back on Malachi, how have they interpreted these hardships spiritually? What would you say? Do you know what they've done? They've blamed their hardships on God. Like the people of Israel thinking, we're fine, spiritually speaking. We've rebuilt the temple, we're taking, we're going to worship, we're, we're great, we're faithful, we're obedient. It's just that at this point in time, God's not interested in us. Like God is not involved here. These hardships, it's because of God's disinterest in us. Now, if you bear that in mind, the fact that the people of God are blaming God for all these hardships, doesn't it help you make sense of the first phrase? Have a look at verse 6 with me. 
Look what God says, and they're blaming him for these hardships. What does God say? He says, wait a minute here. I do not change. My friends, do you, do you see what God is saying to his people there? He's saying, wait a second. Don't pin your hardships on me. Like, don't blame these hardships. I am the un- immutable, unchanging God. Like, I've entered into a covenant with your fathers. I've been good to them. My goodness never fails. You can't, you can't seriously be blaming me for these hardships, right? But then, who is to blame? Read on. Look at verse 7. What does God say? He says, no, hang on. Don't blame me. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside. You see, you are to blame for these hardships you face. And if you have been a part of LCPC over the last number of weeks, don't you know <laughs> that is true? I mean, think back on this book. Do you see what's happened? The mixed marriages. Do you remember those that the people were tolerating? Do you remember? Do you remember the false teaching they were tolerating from the priests? Do you remember the blemished offerings they were offering up to God? Do you see what... All of that is done. It is forced God's hand to remove blessing from these people. Who is to blame for these hardships? Is it a character flaw in God? What is it? It is the persistence of the people's sin. That's the fault. Now I know we're just getting up and running with a sermon. But isn't there a message here for our congregation this morning? I think everyone in in this room just now can see that there's a clear parallel that we've got this morning. Don't you think so? There's a parallel between Malachi chapter 3 and the state of the church in the West in the 21st century. Isn't there? Isn't it the case that today the church in the West is in a season of struggle? Isn't it? I mean, we are laboring and we are working. And what's happening? We see very little, perhaps, fruit for these labors. And we look around just as these people did. And what do we see? We see the pagans, certainly in this city, flourishing, prospering. But here's the problem. Where do we pin the blame? Very often what we do is we pin the blame on these spiritual struggles. We pin the blame on God. We say, well, we are faithful. We are obedient. We're rebuilding the temple. It's just that this is a day of small things. Isn't that what we say? We're fine. We're faithful. We're obedient. It's just at this point in redemptive history, God is not that involved just now. Well, maybe that's right. But maybe it's not. And I want us to think about this. I want you to think about this very, very carefully just now, friend. Could it be that the lack of spiritual blessing we see in the church in the West is actually caused by us and the persistent sinfulness in our own lives? Do you see it? Could that be it? Like the lack of conversions we see, the the lack of Christian flourishing, is it actually a direct result of the persistence of, of us, our waywardness, our sinfulness? Isn't it a thought? Isn't it a scary thought? Why is there not more blessing? Do we blame God? Is it God's disinterest? Or actually, could it be that the problem is a little bit closer to home? 
So God shows the people here the reason for their struggles. Okay, answer me this though. What would you expect to happen next in Malachi chapter 3? Like suspend your knowledge of the character of God for a moment. What, what would you expect to happen in Malachi chapter 3? Think about the situation. God has been good to the people. God has freed them from slavery. What have the people have done? They've turned around, blamed God. What do we think could happen if we didn't know the character of God? We think, well, maybe God's going to destroy the people. Maybe, maybe God at least is going to turn away from Israel, right? We could think that's going to happen. So, isn't it amazing what you read next? Look with me to halfway through verse 7. It's marvelous. Because does God destroy them? No, God issues an appeal. And honestly, friends, throughout the week that has, has struck me. I mean, do you see what is happening there? You have the creator, God, pleading with his creations and his creatures. Isn't it stunning? You have the righteous and almighty and holy God. And what's he doing? He's begging with reverence. That's what he's doing. He's begging sinful man. Isn't it amazing that God would appeal to his people? So do you notice exactly what he says? Please do. Do you see the words? He says to his people, these sinful people, he says... Return to me, and I will return to you. And I'm sure you see the message there. He's saying to these people, do you want these hardships to, to, to evaporate? Do you want real change in Israel? Then, then turn from your half-heartedness and your sin. Turn, pursue me. me. And what does he say? Blessing is going to be poured out on Israel. And I think I have to, at this moment, return to what I said at the start of the sermon. Like I really am. It's not empty. It's not verbiage. I really hope and pray that today is going to be different for us. Today is going to be a unique day. And I want to just unpack that a little bit. You see, I'm wondering whether in here just now, what are we on? The 3rd of June. Is that 3rd of June 2008? I wonder if in here right now, God is doing what he did here in the 5th century BC. Now, do you see what I mean by that? I wonder if this almighty creator God who appealed to these ancient people, I wonder if right now God is appealing to you. Isn't that a thought? And if he is through his word and his spirit, Christian friend, do you hear what God is saying He is pleading with you, return to me, and I will return to you. Now you see it, do you? That if we want to see people one for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we want to see growth, if we want to see interest in Jesus, what do we have to do as a congregation? Do you know what we have to do? We have to go back. You have to go back. And it's not just going back to Christian service. And it's not just going back to a certain style of living. You need to go back to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to see that growth, if we want to see that change, we must repent, we must return to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it the case that God is speaking to us this morning in his word? That can be an exhilarating thing, but we must need to pay attention. He says, return to me, listen to the promise, and I will return to you. Aren't you with me? Isn't it 
a remarkable appeal. Secondly, we see here a remarkable accusation. A remarkable accusation. I've said this before, I think I'll say it again, I'm sure. Uh, But I'm sure you'd agree that there are verses and phrases in God's word that seem, in a sense, to shine brighter uh, than the rest. Don't get my doctrine of scripture wrong here. All scripture is God-breathed, okay? Every bit of scripture is equally valuable. But I'm sure you agree that some phrases seem to almost kind of stand out and grab our attention. John 3.16, classic example, that unique summarizing phrase, or Romans 8.28, I'm sure that many Christians in here grasp that and hold it dear. Do you know what? As, as we continue in this section of Malachi, we now arrive at the most striking Phrase. I think one of the most striking phrases in all of the Bible. And you'll see it towards the beginning of verse 8. Beginning of verse 8. In fact, before you look at it, look at me just for a second. Make sure we get the context. You see what's happening, do you? God's begging these people to come back to him. He wants a close personal relationship with these people. And what's the problem? Now, you've got to listen to this because I'm going to come back to it later on. What's the problem? Did you see what the people are saying? God says, return. The people say, we don't need to return. I mean, they think they're great. They think there's no problem at all. Return? Turn from what? We're doing fine. You see, that's the attitude of the people. Now look at verse 8. What does God say? He says, you are robbing me. Christian friends in here, do you not agree that that phrase jumps out of the text? And there's a couple of things that I, I want you to understand and appreciate about that. You are robbing me. One is that there is violence inherent in that phrase. Like if you're reading that phrase as God saying, you're stealing from me, that's not it. It really isn't. It's much more than that. There's violence here. This is God saying, you are beating me, then seizing what is mine. God is saying here, you are mugging me. There's violence. The second thing you've got to see is that it's very, 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 very specific. Because look at the end of the verse. God ties this robbery, this mugging, to the giving of tithes. And the giving of contributions in the covenant community. Now I know, look, I know there's a problem here. This is always what happens. If I speak about the Old Testament tithing system, or the Old Testament financial system, I, from the pulpit, I just see just like this, this wash of glazed eyes. You know, tithing! Oh no, because, yeah, we say, well it's not really relevant to us, and because it's very complicated, the Old Testament tithing system. So, This is what we're going to do, okay? I'm going to bring this to the children of the congregation. We've got to bring the kids. We've got, they have to understand this. And if we do that, we'll all be on the same page, right? So don't let your eyes glaze over, people, please. Okay, boys and girls, those at the back, those at the front, even those in the middle. Okay, you're going to listen to me for a moment. Have you ever heard of taxes before? There's one nod ahead. Some say no, some say yes. The adults here are saying, if you haven't heard of taxes now, one day you will have heard of taxes. 
So taxes, if you haven't heard of them, that's where the government, at the end of every month, the government will take some of your parents' paycheck away. Does that sound bad? Does it? That's a good thing to do. So at the end of the month, if your mum or your dad's working, the government will take some money to pay for things like the bin collection or to ensure that the roads in the United Kingdom are beautifully smooth at all times. Okay, that's the theory. So what's that called? That's taxes. Everyone got it? Boys and girls, taxes. Okay. Now when you hear your minister or your Sunday school teacher or your mums or your dads talk about tithing, that's what you've got to think about. Because tithing in the Old Testament, boys and girls, was God's taxation system. So God would take some money from the community. You think about it. The community had to run properly, didn't it? The people of God. The priests would have to be paid, wouldn't they? The Levites and the poor in the community would have to be looked after. So what does God do? God takes 27% or thereabout from the people. It's a tax. It's a tithe. It's a tax. But friends, what are we learning here? Did you listen to the first reading? From Nehemiah 13, from Malachi chapter 3, we see, and isn't it amazing when you think about it, at this point in time, the people of God have stopped paying their taxes, their tithes to God. At this point in time, the Levites are having to go out into the field. They can't be supported. The community is suffering. God slipping down the list of priorities, the people keeping their money, their produce for themselves. And what does God say this is? He says this constitutes a violent criminal act against my holy name. Now it's amazing to think of that. It's a terrible thing to think that they are mugging God like this. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about this from God's perspective. Don't just focus on the tithing. Do you see what God is doing? It's beautiful. What did I say a moment ago? God is appealing for his people to return. What was the problem? Remember I said I'd come back to it. What was the problem? The people don't see their need to repent. They don't see their need to return. So what does God do here? Where does he point them? Where does he point them? To show them their sin. To show them the error of their ways. Does he point them here to their mixed marriages? Does he point them to the false teaching? No, to show them their sin. He points them to the way that they give to God. I mean, isn't that a lesson for the church today? Friends, the way that we give, it lifts the lid on the true condition of our heart as Christians. Like if you're here this morning and you're wondering about your spiritual walk as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are wondering, is there a coldness here between me and Jesus? Is there a hardness? Then you consider and give attention to the way that you give and your attitude to what you earn. I'm telling you this, all of this leads me to say something that is not easy to hear, maybe certainly not easy for me to say. If you're visiting, you're already aware that in a sermon, I will ask a lot of like rhetorical questions. I think it's a, a good way of us wrestling together with a text of God's word. I am going to pose you a question that frightens me to ask and to think about. As the minister of this congregation, will you listen to the question? Could it be 
that you and me, that we at London City Presbyterian Church, could it be that we are robbing God? I mean, could it be that this dreadful accusation of violence against a holy and perfect creator God, could it be this accusation has some relevance to us in here as Christians? Like, I know that we are not under the Old Testament tithing system. I get it. Obviously, I I get it. We're not tied to this certain percentage every month. But you remember, I'm sure most of you, that recent sermon we had on money and giving. This side of Calvary, what are we to be like as a Christian community? Generous. We are to be giving in a voluntary way, giving desperate to see the cause of Christ advance. And I ask you simply, are we doing that? Am I doing that? Are you doing that? And ask yourself this. Do you give in a way that really, truly costs you? Like, do you give to the work of the church and the work of the gospel in a way that you feel in your pocket? You know, a way that hurts that sacrificial giving that Paul talks about. Or is it the case that actually we just give whatever we can afford to give? We give the extra. We, the focus of our money is us and our enjoyment. Is that it for us as a congregation? Is it? Well, we see here that the manner in which we give is a measure of our hearts as Christians. The manner in which we give is a measure, the health of our hearts as believers. So maybe it is, of course, that God is appealing to us to return to him. Maybe that's right, but maybe also by pointing us to our finances. God here is showing us our desperate need to do just that. The desperate need we have as a church to return to the Lord of hosts. So we see a remarkable appeal and a remarkable accusation. And then we close with remarkable assurances. Remarkable assurances. So you've got this plea from God. You then have God pointing to the finances, showing the people their need to return. As we close this section of scripture, what we are shown is the motivation or the incentive, if we should need such, to return to the Almighty God. Because if you see in verses 10 to 12, God shows his people amazing benefits, like glorious benefits that should be theirs, if they will turn back to him, if they will make right their tithing, and if they test his grace. And I want to say this to you. This is for you. This is not theoretical. This is not abstract. God here makes three promises. Promises to benefit his covenant community. And these are the promises he makes to us if we return to him and make right our, our tithing and test his grace. So do you want, do you want to see them? Do you want to see these benefits and assurances? The first, God promises his blessing. Have a look at verse 10. I'll give you a moment, even the boys and girls, if you have a look at verse 10 and see if the boys and girls can recognize, this is a real test. You've got to try and recognize the language here, boys and girls. Okay, verse 10, God says to the people, bring, so turn from your ways, bring the full tithe in the storehouse, 
hereby put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing until there is no more deed. Boys and girls, do you recognize the language? I won't extend it to your mums and dads either. Or to any... Windows of heaven. See where that's from? It's Genesis 7. Isn't it? That's the language of the flood. So do you see what God is actually promising these people here? They're struggling architecturally, agriculturally rather, and struggling with their crops. And what does God say? I will give you rain. I will prosper. I will give you material growth. If you turn, if you make right your tithing, I'm going to prosper you in your fields. And you can imagine the people of Israel, can you hear in this great promise from God, things can change. But isn't it a really dangerous promise for us in the 21st century church? Because what do we keep going back to as Christians? The fact that in this city, in so many churches, the prosperity gospel abounds. And in this city today, probably at this very hour, you have men and women masquerading as Christian ministers. And what do they say to their flock? They say, if you give money to the church, you will receive material blessing in return. And what do we know in here? We know that that is not the true and right application of this text. What is this about? What are we promised in repentance? We are promised spiritual blessing. The windows of heaven open and spiritual blessing is poured out. But I want to say to you as a church, isn't that better by far? I mean, you can keep your clothes and your planes and whatever it might be. Don't we want spiritual blessing in here? I mean, imagine it with me just for a moment. Please, Christian friend. Imagine we return to God and, and God opens the windows of heaven and we see people saved. Imagine you and me leading people to the cross and the Holy Spirit working. Imagine this, please, jam-packed with people who have been won for Christ. Can you imagine it? I mean, imagine that we totally outgrow this place. That we have to, as a church, church plant throughout London. Imagine this. Imagine a London presbytery, the free church. Does that sound crazy? It's not crazy. How does it start? It starts today with you and me on bended knee in repentance before our God. And the second benefit we see is God promises his protection. Look with me at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Again, boys and girls, see if you can find it. Verse 11. God says next, I will rebuke the devourer. Maybe we look at that, do we? And we think that's kind of odd language, is it? The devourer. Well, really in the context, it seems to be speaking about locusts. You see the idea. That's certainly how it's translated elsewhere in the Bible. The idea these crops are failing, that this pest, this enemy is attacking the crops. And what does God say? You return to me. What's God going to do? Protect them. Destroy that enemy. And isn't the application, oh, isn't it easy? Isn't it straightforward? Friends, listen to me. We in this congregation, today, we face a devourer. We face an enemy, the evil one. And he today is seeking to destroy the work of our hands, the fruit of our labors. Are we taking that seriously? The devourer seeking to ruin our children. 
to lead them away from the gospel. This devout are seeking to destroy the gospel service and our gospel work. So do we not rejoice? Do we not pay heed to this promise from God? We repent, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive protection from his hand. And then with reverence, I must say this, that God does hear what my youngest daughter does with her food at every meal. Because God leaves the best last. You see, look at verse 12. God promises evangelistic success to his people. Look at verse 12. Do you see it? It's the last verse. He says, then, if you do this, all nations will one day call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight. And you see it, should Israel repent of their sins, should they make right their tithing, financial contributions, God promises to so prosper this community that even those apparently prosperous pagans will have to sit up and take note of Israel. And isn't that everything for us? Isn't that our greatest desire? What do we want to see as Christians? We want to see LCPC stand as a beacon of light in this dark, dreadful city. We want the pagans prospering, it would seem, in London today to look on and take note of LCPC's good news. Is that not incentive enough for us today to return to God? He will return to us and it's going to be seen. But I'm going to end like this by speaking to the Christian here who is doubting all of this today. I wonder if that's you. If you're born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're sitting scratching your head thinking, I don't believe this. Like, okay, yeah, we return to God. Yeah, okay, but is God really a London presbytery? You know, is God really going to, are we really going to see lots of spiritual dramatic change in our own lives and communities? Really, really believe God is going to do that if you are doubting as a Christian this morning. You got to look back to the cross of Christ. I mean, this morning, you have to reflect on what it is that God has done. Do you not remember what God has done for you? You are forgiven. You are reconciled to this great God, the Lord of hosts. You are redeemed and the chains are set free. Your sin is gone and it is cleansed. And how did it happen? The father has seen his own son die. That God sent his son into the world to atone for sin. Is then the logic of the apostle Paul not right? If that has happened, if the cross has happened, if the father has seen his own son die, then will he not also graciously give us all things? If you're doubting the goodness and the desire that God has to prosper his church, look again at Calvary friends this morning. Let us pay heed to Malachi 3. Let us really repent and return to God. Let's show it and demonstrate it in good financial giving. And all that this city, all that the nations might look on and see that yes, our God is good, that they might recognize, even a city like London, that the Lord Jesus Christ is King. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you that from word one in Scripture all the way through, we see that you are a gracious and merciful God to your covenant people. We thank you that you have never turned aside truly from Israel. You have never abandoned your covenant people, that you do not abandon those in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord God, that there is this bountiful spiritual blessing awaiting those who are repentant. Lord, we have a prayer that if there are any in here today, Lord God, who have never bowed the knee at all, that even now that you would work and that you would turn them from their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.